KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. Local reaction to the invasion in Ukraine. It's time. We are talking now, but people are dying over there. Every minute, every second, people dying. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The point-in-time homeless count happened this morning, so how is the information used? The idea is, you know, they go in this area and they say, oh, look, maybe there's more homeless people living here. We need to allocate more resources here. Author Heather McGee talks drained pool politics and her book, The Some of Us, plus a look at some upcoming musicals for our midday movies. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. As the U.S. woke up to news that Russia was invading Ukraine, many in San Diego's Ukrainian community began worrying about their relatives and the fate of their native land. He is holding to his promise of taking the whole thing, the whole of Ukraine. That's Oskold Haiwas, who, with his wife Nadia, spoke to KPBS this morning following news of the invasion. They expressed rage and confusion with Russian President Vladimir Putin, but not surprise. I felt simply anger and anger at something like this happening at all. At this time, this age, something that I, I, I couldn't understand that somebody would want to do that. Just crazy. Just something that I couldn't envision. Uh, surrealistic. The couple shared how friends and family in the region are faring. Nadia says people she knows have already fled contentious regions or are in the process of getting out now. But continued explosions and further bombings have halted evacuations in some areas. We have friends who were very close to Donetsk and they've left and they are now outside of Kyiv. We have friends in uh, Chernihiv, which is to the north, and they've gotten in their car and they are leaving. And when I ask them where they're going to, they do not know. They are very frightened. Friends from Odessa have made it as far north as Vinnytsia and they couldn't go any further because of explosions and detonations. So we are we are worried and we don't want this to last forever. We want this to be done and it needs to be done quickly. When asked about the international response to the invasion, Oskol said that while he was encouraged by the widespread condemnation of Russia's military action, sanctions alone would not bring the conflict to an end. The sanctions will not stop Putin, period. I don't care what you put on that list, it will not stop. The actions uh, that will stop is something that nobody wants to mention. So the question is, yes, Neil, and what now? Faced with the prospect of escalating global conflict, Oskold quoted Winston Churchill. We, the West, have a choice, war or shame. And he predicted correctly, he said, we'll take shame, but the war will come anyhow. 
Father Yuri Sass is administrator of St. John the Baptizer Ukrainian Catholic Church in San Diego. His concern is for the Ukrainian people. It's time. We are talking now, but people are dying over there. Every minute, every second, people dying. We need to stop this stupid aggression. My relatives, they live close to the airport. They just heard a couple explosions. Like, I, I can't believe it happened, but it happened. And we need to stay together. We need to support each other. According to SAS, Ukrainians in the country that now find themselves trapped by the conflict are faced with a choice, flee or fight. SAS says those who are choosing to stay behind remain resolute, preparing to dig in and fight the Russian aggression. You can run from war. You can. And my friends, they are ready to protect their motherland. They are not soldiers. They're just regular people. But some of them like try to, to send their family like abroad to Poland, but they are not going to run from their country. As world leaders consider the scale of response to the conflict, Sass says that regardless of what consequences Russia will face, he hopes that global support will rally behind Ukraine before more people die. world is waiting. For what? For more victims? More blood? We'll see. President Joe Biden addressed the nation this morning, outlining what the Ukraine invasion will mean to the U.S. and the rest of the world. The next few weeks and months we hard on the people of Ukraine. Putin has unleashed a great pain on them. But the Ukrainian people have known 30 years of independence. They've repeatedly shown that they will not tolerate anyone who tries to take their country backwards. This is a dangerous moment for all of Europe for the freedom around the world. Putin has committed an assault on the very principles that uphold the global peace. KPBS-FM will bring you the latest on the Ukraine invasion and the U.S. response with updates from NPR. Last night was one of the coldest nights this winter, leaving those unsheltered in dangerous conditions. This morning was also the point-in-time homeless count in San Diego. Teams hit the streets at 4 a.m. to get a count of how many people are living without a home. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman was there and joins us now with more. Matt, welcome. Hey, Jade. You've been out in Spring Valley since 6 this morning covering the point-in-time homeless count. What did you see out there? Yeah, so we got in Spring Valley just a little bit before six, obviously still dark and something to point out too, it was freezing out there. I mean, not quite freezing, but my car said it was about 37, 38 degrees. So very cold night for those who are out sleeping in tents and sleeping out there on the streets, unlucky enough to not be in shelters. By the time we got there, you know, the count starts at 4 a.m., supposed to go till 8 in the Spring Valley area. They had already finished uh, around 6 o'clock, um, so we got the chance to talk to some of the volunteers out there, um, and we also went out um, and saw some of what they had seen, albeit it was much darker, um, but saw a lot of the encampments up there, um, some of them under overpass freeways, and some of them just freestanding tents. Does conducting the count in the winter make it harder to get a more accurate count due to the homeless population seeking shelter during the colder nights? So something to understand with this count is it counts the unsheltered and the sheltered. And when we're talking about unsheltered too, we're also talking about people who are, are living in their vehicles. Um, and so for, for instance, in 2020, you know, there was no count last year due to the pandemic. 2020, there was about 7,600 total homeless. 
Um, and it's almost split 50 50 between unsheltered and sheltered. Um, obviously, when it's winter, it's much colder out there. But I think part of the idea of doing it in the early morning hours is that they're hoping that people will be where they sleep. Um, and they try to put case workers, case management workers who are out there uh, working with the unsheltered every day. So they know, hey, this is where this person sleeps. If they're not there, maybe we know that they sleep over here. The San Diego Regional Task Force on Homelessness conducts this count. What kind of information are they looking to get? They're looking to get some demographics. So, you know, things like age. They're also looking for if people form our military, if people are, you know, living with a spouses, a partner, or maybe if they're living with a family uh, to try to get them the help that they need. The idea is, you know, they go in this area and they say, oh, look, maybe there's more homeless people living here. We need to allocate more resources here. We know that the count is tied to federal and state funding. Um, something that's a little bit interesting, though, you know, a lot of times the count is focused on downtown, obviously very visible problem there in San Diego city center, thousands of homeless expected to be counted down there. Uh, but a lot of times when they interact with those people, you know, they're offering them shelter when shelter beds are available um, because it's so close, even at the beach areas, you know, people can go to shelters. But in the East County, like out here in Spring Valley, a lot of people, you know, they don't want to go downtown to go to a shelter. And right now, that's sort of really the only option uh, as Brian Gruders, he's the associate director. Director of Outreach for PATH. They were out there today and he spoke to a gentleman who's in this situation. I saw a guy who said he'd been homeless for 15 years, freely admitted that he's got a substance use issue. But that's, to me, that's a fellow that we could get connected to a shelter. I mean, I think typically we see in areas outside of the downtown core, whether that's in the city of San Diego or in the county, if there were a shelter close by that wouldn't uproot them. I mean, he said he been homeless here. This is where he became homeless and this is where he's been homeless for 15 years. So he's from this community. I think for someone like that, the idea of moving to downtown to live in a shelter is, I mean, you may as well ask him to move to Iowa. He doesn't want to go there. And that's something that we hear, not just from people outside of the city center, but sometimes people even living in the city of San Diego, that they don't want to go to congregate shelters. I will add a note too, that the county is trying to work on building some shelters out there. So maybe people like this gentleman will have a place to go pretty soon to find shelter. You know, Matt, how is the information collected during this count used? So there's kind of two pieces. So there's the piece that they count the number of people living on the streets. There's some federal and state dollars that correlate to that, sort of, you know, supposed to correlate to the amount of problem there is, and then get the corresponding dollars to help try to fix that. Um, and then there's also the other information in terms of just talking to people and asking them, hey, what can help you? You know, do you need a blanket? Um, do you stay in this area often? Do you move around? Um, just trying to get a, a sort of a grasp on the homeless to figure out what they need. Now, I will point out too, a lot of this work happens every single day. Um, obviously, this count gets a lot of attention because typically it only happens once a year. And how does the homeless count process work? So there's teams that go all across the county and they go in census tracks. Um, and typically on a team, they like to have a case manager or a case advisor who works with the homeless directly. Uh, and typically if they can find somebody from that area, like in Spring Valley, they had a homeless outreach worker from PATH who was leading a team. Uh, he works that area every day. He knows where the people stay, has personal relationships, and that's to help try to get an accurate count. They want to be as accurate as they possibly can to try to get the most uh, dollars that represent the current situation. The homeless count happens every two years, but recently it was postponed. Can you tell us about that and how the pandemic has impacted this effort? Yeah, so there was no homeless count last year due to the pandemic. Now, 
the regional task force on the homeless, which organizes all this, they say that, you know, per federal guidelines, they only have to do it every other year. Uh, but here in San Diego, uh, they typically do it every single year. Something to note too, maybe an early indicator, you know, you talk to people, you talk to those uh, who work with the homeless. Definitely, it seems anecdotally that there's a visual increase in those people living on the streets. Obviously, the results of this will confirm that or not. Um, but at least in downtown, the downtown partnerships, they're a nonprofit down there. Uh, they do monthly counts of, of the number of tents down there. Uh, from this January compared to last January, they've seen a 50% increase. So not sure if that's an indicator, but we may see a higher number than in 2020, which was about 7,600 sheltered and unsheltered. We know information from the point in time count is used to get funding, but what about policy changes? That's something that the providers on the ground talk about. You know, when you go on this count, whether it be Spring Valley, whether you're going up to Oceanside, uh, if there's a problem, and keep in mind, they haven't taken an official, you know, count of these areas in two years. So they want to see where people are going. Are they moving out of the downtown center where we know that there's a lot of resources and a lot of people congregate? Are they starting to move to other cities where maybe there's not a lot of resources? So they want to pinpoint where these people are and move the resources accordingly. I've been speaking with KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. Matt, thank you very much. Thanks, Jade. Even as new cases of the Omicron COVID variant decline, health providers continue to grapple with long COVID, perhaps the most mysterious and enduring aspect of the pandemic. While many people who are infected with COVID-19 recover in days or weeks, Others, sometimes called long haulers, experience debilitating symptoms months after their infection. The list of symptoms and health problems caused by long COVID are wide-ranging, attacking different parts of the body in patients and making it difficult for doctors to diagnose and treat. UCSD Health Infectious Disease Specialist Dr. Lucy Horton spoke with Christina Kim about what is known about long COVID today. Can you define this term long COVID for us? What do we know about it today? So long COVID really refers to a spectrum of persistent symptoms that patients can have in the weeks to months or even longer following their acute COVID infection. There's really no consensus definition, but most experts would agree that Symptoms lasting longer than at least four weeks from the time of the acute infection would be long COVID. There is a huge range of symptoms and they can impact really any organ system. So when we're defining long COVID, it's hard to determine it based off of any specific symptoms, but more kind of patterns of symptoms that occur in the right time frame after a COVID infection. Is there any other illness or virus that has these kind of long-lasting effects? There are many post-viral syndromes that we know about. Most of them only occur in a very, very small subset of patients. So we've never really seen a post-viral syndrome to the degree that we have with COVID. For example, Ebola virus can lead to long-term symptoms. And there are some other childhood um, infections, for example, such as measles that can cause a long-term symptoms or syndromes. But, you know, we just don't experience those that much because those viruses aren't really commonly seen here in the United States. Do we have a sense of the number of people who are suffering from long COVID in the United States? We know that approximately 15% of patients who survive their infections may continue to have long COVID symptoms. 
Um, so we could make estimates based on the overall number of people who've been infected to date in the United States. There's now haven't been any really wide studies to try to determine that exact number. We've heard a lot about brain fog as being a common symptom of long COVID, but what are some of the other more common symptoms your patients are experiencing? So in our patient cohort, we do see quite a bit of the brain fog. We also see a lot of fatigue, persistent muscle and joint pain, persistent issues with breathing, you know, a lot of decreased ability to exercise and a lot of fatigue after exercise. But symptoms really are so wide ranging. We've seen patients with chronic rashes, chronic diarrhea, vision, hearing issues, just to name a few. Do we know anything about who is more likely to develop long COVID? We're still trying to understand who is at highest risk for developing long COVID. Um, There have been a few studies that have come out recently suggesting that patients with diabetes, for example, may be at a higher risk of developing long COVID symptoms. Uh, But what's really interesting is that the initial part of the infection doesn't necessarily seem to predict who develops long COVID. So the majority of patients who have long COVID actually had pretty mild initial infections. They were not hospitalized. They did not require any intensive care unit stays. So unlike those who are more likely to develop severe COVID and even die from COVID, those who develop long COVID seem to be a much different population. What have we learned about long COVID from this most recent surge, and has it been changing as new variants arise? We're really just over two months from when infections in the United States with Omicron really surged. So we're just now starting to see patients present with long COVID symptoms. So it's a little bit early to really understand the impact that the different variants have on long COVID. But there have been several studies that have come out recently looking at the role of vaccination on long COVID, showing that people who are vaccinated prior to getting infected are less likely to develop long COVID symptoms. So when I think about that and understanding how many people during the Omicron surge were vaccinated but still got infected, I would think that the percentage of people who would develop long COVID symptoms might actually be a little bit lower compared to prior surges. What are the treatments that have been developed to actually deal with long COVID? Are they different than other COVID treatments? So right now, there are no specific targeted treatments for long COVID. Unlike those for acute COVID, there are no monoclonal antibodies or antiviral drugs. So we're really left with trying to treat specific symptoms and focusing a lot on rehab and kind of emotional and psychosocial support as well. I'm, you know, hopeful that we'll have more treatments in the future. There's several that are in clinical trials, but as of now, uh, there are no approved or authorized treatments specifically for long COVID. Do you anticipate that long COVID will impact our medical system? Do hospitals have the ability to fully handle the needs of long COVID patients? We're expecting to see large numbers of long COVID patients as long as the pandemic continues. Right now, I think that the majority of patients with long COVID symptoms are not yet in care. 
either because they haven't presented for care or they haven't really been identified as having long COVID. So I think that we're really only seeing the tip of the iceberg in terms of patients coming and seeking care at a clinic like ours, for example. So I do think that health systems should prepare for more patients and put systems in place so that they can identify, treat, and support all of these patients in the months and years to come. What is your biggest concern when it comes to long COVID? My biggest concern about long COVID is just um, not knowing how many people will fully recover. Uh, We do know that many will have a meaningful recovery, but many still have symptoms almost two years after their initial infection. And that would really impact both the individual patients, but society as a whole, if we think about these young, relatively healthy people who may be permanently disabled because of long COVID. So not knowing that and not being able to predict how many people fully recover and not, I think is one of the biggest challenges I face as a clinician treating these patients. I've been speaking with infectious disease specialist, Dr. Lucy Horton. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me today. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. A long stretch of sandy beach coastline is a big part of what makes San Diego, San Diego. But new information on the expected rate of sea level rise has raised concerns about the future of our beaches, our coastal cliffs, even the built environment along our coast. If the projections are right and sea levels along the California coast rise by eight inches by mid-century, how will it change San Diego? And what, if anything, can we do to prepare? Joining me is Mark Merrifield oceanographer with Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And Mark, welcome to the program. Thank you. Now, it's hard to imagine exactly what eight inches in sea level rise actually means. What happens when sea levels are that much higher? What would we see? Well, we see that swing every day with the tides. So we're, you know, we're used to seeing that level of change. But what will, what will change is that every high tide will be that much higher and every low tide as well. So we'll be in a situation where what tends to happen on our coast is that we tend to get flooding during the highest tides when there are some other factor involved, like ocean waves or an El Nino rise in sea level. And so this extra seven inches or so will cause that uh, risk to be even higher. What happens if we have more than an eight inch rise in sea levels? There's a prediction that it could rise if climate change continues unmitigated to a much higher degree at the end of this century. Yeah, there's a tipping point. There's, it's, it comes down to you know, how, what's the elevation of the land above mean sea level right now. And so when you get up to sort of four feet above sea level, which is, not, um, which is predicted in some of these projections going forward, certainly by the middle of next century, then we're talking about a very different waterfront. Um, good parts of the San Diego Bay around the perimeter will be um, flooded, uh, Mission Bay as well. Um, the estuaries, the wetlands will be, the perimeters of those will be much broader. 
And we'll see these uh, low points um, in the Midway area and Imperial Beach and uh, Coronado where um, the groundwater table will be very close to the surface in a way that whenever we get heavy rain events, uh, flooding will occur even if the ocean doesn't overwash from, um, from the shore. So it's going to be a very, very different San Diego if we get to above this sort of natural threshold uh, imposed by our own terrain here where we will be having to really accommodate water in a way that we've never done so before. And if we have water in the streets, that could also affect storm drains and important aspects of our infrastructure. Isn't that right? That's right. We're already seeing that during some of the King Tide events, um, you know, where you'll have to divert traffic or uh, close down a road. And of course, uh, there's big concern about how uh, rising sea levels and with that more wave action at the base of some of our cliffs is going to translate into increased rates of bluff erosion. And of course, with the coaster train and um, some of our infrastructure right along the coast there, it is a big concern. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit more about what happens to our coastline. How does sea level rise create beach and coastal cliff erosion? As the sea level rises, that wave action rises higher and higher up the beach and higher and higher up the cliff. And so you are now um, creating a situation where there's just more hours of attack per day and more days per year where a beach is underwater, and that leads to more erosion. And so does this mean an end to our sandy beaches? It's a concern. We've already seen kind of glimpses of this. So when we're in the middle of an El Nino winter, for instance, where the sea level is is unusually high, at least a foot higher than usual, and we get heavy storm events, uh, the beaches, the sand on the beach has a hard time staying in place and we're it's replaced by more of a rocky, cobbly shoreline. And so that's the concern is that we may not be able to sustain beaches year round and that cobbles may be a, a big part of the San Diego coastal experience. There are some ideas about how to confront this sea level rise, uh, to move infrastructure inland, even using managed retreat to move homes back from the coast. But all of that is basically talk now. How can a report like this become a call to action? It certainly sets some time frames, right? We, now we know that by the middle of the century, with that much sea level rise, planners can start to look at the most vulnerable parts of our shorelines and work that into planning design as well as strategies for building resilience along the coastline which we're seeing more of that. We're seeing things like natural shorelines where uh, dunes and other natural systems are used to try and protect the beach. Um, And I think more and more, we're gonna have to look at innovative ways of uh, maintaining the shoreline, holding off that uh, rising water as as much as we can in the hopes that ultimately that we keep the levels below kind of critical thresholds as time goes on. Um, By the mid-century and even by the end of the century, these will certainly be nuisances, and then as time goes on, more and more of, of a fundamental uh, risk to the coastline. But ultimately, if we get into situations where we're talking about two, three, four, and greater feet of sea level rise, then kind of all bets are off on how we're going to be able to maintain a lot of our infrastructure. We've been hearing about this coming for quite some time. Do you think there's finally enough public will to actually start to do fundamental things to confront this issue? There is certainly a lot of awareness, um, and I know that it is a, it's a daunting problem because individually it's hard to, 
to imagine um, steps that we can take that can, um, you know, lead to positive change. But we have to start. And um, I think this report is really a call to action. What are some C-RISE adaptation strategies you'd like to see started right now? Uh, I like this living shoreline approach. I do think that there's um, ways that we can think about uh, maintaining our shorelines through a good part of the century through a combination of replenishment and uh, smart design. And um, that, those are systems that I'd like to see tested more. I mean, they're hard to implement and kind of hard to permit, but they're going to become essential and we might as well start now on getting out in front of that. But adaptation can only take us so far. Does this new report say there's a chance we can avoid the worst effects of sea level rise? The report does paint a very different picture in the future depending on our emission levels. So if we can keep to, if we can reduce emissions and keep the global temperatures in check, then the future sea level scenarios are, are manageable and adaptation will be effective. Um, on some of the worst case scenarios, their adaptations will be completely irrelevant and we'll be facing a very, very different world um, with profound impacts, not only in San Diego, but across most coastlines. I've been speaking with Mark Merrifield, oceanographer with Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Mark, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Author Heather McGee says she started out on a mission to answer one simple question. Why can't America have nice things? Nice things like well-funded public schools in every neighborhood and truly universal guaranteed health care, child care, and affordable housing. She explores answers to those questions in her book, The Sum of Us, How Racism Cost Everyone and How We Can Prosper. Joining me to talk about her book is Heather McGee. Heather, welcome. Thank you so much, Jade. You know, in your book, The Some of Us, you talk about drained pool politics. Can you explain what that is? When I went on this journey, I, I wanted to look at real life examples across the country. Um, and one of the first places I went was Montgomery, Alabama, where I walked the grounds of what used to be a thousand plus person lavishly funded public swimming pool. And these kinds of swimming pools used to be kind of a hallmark of American life in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, when middle-class security was really strong and it was funded by tax dollars. It was part of this sort of ethos of public goods that ensured that everyone had a decent standard of living. But as we know, the public pool in Montgomery, Alabama, and in so many other places, either by law or by custom, was segregated and for whites only. And so too were the other kinds of public goods that helped to make a middle-class life really possible and affordable. Whether it was uh, mortgages and, and virtually free no down payment housing or social security or collective bargaining, all of these public goods of that time really helped to create a big middle class, but helped to create a whites only middle class. And what I discovered was that when the civil rights movement challenged the racial exclusivity of, of public goods like swimming pools and also of the rest of our social contract, that was really when we began to turn away from that winning formula. And in the case of the swimming pools, literally in Montgomery, Alabama, and in hundreds of other places across the country, they actually drained the water out of the pool. 
So that's what I mean by drain pool politics, the idea that racism and our politics and our policymaking ultimately can end up being self-sabotaging and can have a cost for everyone. Hmm. Uh, what are some examples of recent policy uh, that's guilty of drained pool politics? Well, I found examples of drain pool politics. It seemed to be sort of everywhere I looked. Uh, think about how we went in our society from going from having basically free public college, right? State schools and universities that helped really create middle class prosperity. And yet we moved away from that free college system and towards a debt for diploma system where families have to kick in for tuition and where we have all of these loans. Um, and that happened when this new anti-government sentiment really rose up in the wake of the civil rights movement uh, and integration of education. And so the, the debt system right now that we have in higher education is an example of drained pool politics. So is the fact that we sort of stand alone in this country by not having real family policy like universal child care and that we stand alone by not having a really universal guaranteed health care. Uh, white Americans are the largest group of the uninsured, and yet because of racial resentment against the first black president and deeper racial resentment against the idea of collective action, against government, against public solutions, white folks have been, uh, the majority, have been disapproving of of Obamacare ever since it was enacted, and even though they, they benefit uh, largely. You know, I mean, since the 30s, 40s and 50s, how much progress do you think the country has made in terms of moving away from these zero sum policies? You know, this this phenomenon of the zero sum, right, the idea that people believe that progress for people of color has to come at white folks expense, that a dollar more in my pocket must mean a dollar less in yours. That idea um, has really been throughout our history sold to most Americans by a narrow self-interested elite. I'm really interested in the question of who's selling these racist ideas for their own profit more than holding accountable the people who are desperate enough to buy them. And so I think right now we are seeing a resurgence of that zero-sum story of a um, of you know paid bullies in the corporate media you know selling this idea that demographic change is going to mean the loss of the American way of life, blaming immigrants and people of color and racial justice advocates uh, for what is ultimately you know a set of, of policies and decisions uh, that have redistributed wealth upwards, people governing on tax cuts for the wealthy and yet running their campaigns on culture war politics. That's really the same phenomenon that we have seen during other moments of, of acute demographic change. I mean, like here in California, um, the cost of living, you know, meaning just basic necessities um, are skyrocketing, which yeah. widens the, the wealth gap. It, it puts equity further in the distance. Um, what policies do you think would fix some of these issues? Ultimately, the solution to these big problems where each individual trying to pay on their own has not made the math add up is for us to start pooling the costs, right? For us to really actually refill the pool of public goods and say, you know what? There's a bill in Washington that is languishing on the vine that would cap, for example, the amount that families pay for childcare at 7% of their income because it would you know, inject public funding into the system and make millions of new um, high-wage, uh, well-trained childcare jobs and elder care jobs. 
That's the kind of solution that we need. We have a major supply problem in housing. We need to build more housing. And yes, dare I say, low um, low income, affordable, working class public housing. That is, you know, really a gold standard for the world. We can do that. We can afford to do it. And we can afford it publicly. And we simply can't afford to do it privately anymore. The math just isn't adding up. And what do you hope people and policymakers walk away with when they read your book? I hope that policymakers um, and people walk away with um, a sense that there's a real um, mutual interest in addressing racial injustice. That racism costs our economy over a trillion dollars a year uh, in lost GDP growth. That the kinds of solutions that we need to enact in order to address the vestiges of explicit racism in our laws and our policies is not a zero sum. That's what I hope people take away. I've been speaking with Heather McGee, author of The Sum of Us. Heather, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Heather McGee will be discussing her book, The Sum of Us, virtually for the Black History Month lecture series held by the San Diego Public Library, Monday, February 28th from 6.30 to 8 p.m. For more information, go to our website, kpbs.org. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Movie musicals made a comeback last year with West Side Story, Tick, Tick, Boom, and Cyrano all being released and then being nominated for Oscars earlier this month. Cyrano opens this Friday in San Diego cinemas with West Side Story currently streaming on Disney Plus and Tick, Tick, Boom available on Netflix. So it's a good time to convene our midday movies critics to discuss modern musicals. Joining me today is KPBS film critic and host of Cinema Junkie podcast, Beth Accomando, and movie wallers, Yazdi Pithavala. Now, before we talk about these recent musicals, I just want to ask you both if you like musicals and if you grew up watching them. Beth, you first. I did grow up watching a lot of musicals, and I really love the old Hollywood musicals like Singing in the Rain and An American in Paris. But as the studio system faded, I found fewer musicals that I enjoyed as they felt a little more formulated and a little less innovative. But I do appreciate the work of Bob Fosse and rock musicals like A Hard Day's Night and Jesus Christ Superstar. But I really feel like it's a tough genre because more so than any other, it really requires audiences to take a leap of faith and to buy into the fact that people are going to just break into song. I think that's even more difficult than making them buy into like the Star Wars universe or monsters or you know anything like that. It's an acquired taste for some people. But Yazdi, you grew up in India where musicals, Bollywood, remain a cinema staple to this day. So how do you feel about musicals? Uh, I did grow up watching Indian films at least once a week. And uh, to this day, as you mentioned, Indian cinema predominantly is musicals. I mean, it's rare to find a movie which does not have a musical number in it. And also, I should say that the golden age of Hollywood musicals also had a considerable influence on Indian shores. Films like Singing in the Rain and My Fair Lady and The Sound of Music played year after year to sold out Indian theaters in endless reruns. Film musicals are in my blood. And I should also say that for me personally, 
I have seldom liked a film simply because it's a musical. The fact that a film is a musical has always been only one of other things that has made a particular film great. Okay, well, let's start on our film selections for today. Cyrano opens tomorrow. It's an adaptation of a stage musical that was based on Edmund Rostand's play, Cyrano de Bergerac. In the play, the charismatic and poetic title character believes he is too ugly to win the love of the beautiful Roxanne, so he helps a handsome young man named Christian to steal her heart with his words. In the film, Cyrano is played by Peter Dinklage, so instead of a facial disfigurement, Cyrano is a dwarf. Here is the famous balcony scene where Cyrano feeds lines to Christian. I could no more stop loving you. I could no more stop loving you. Then I could stop the sun rising. Then I can stop the sun rising. Really? My cruel love has never stopped growing in my soul. From the day it was born there. From the day it was born. There. There! If your love is cruel, you should have killed it. I tried. It has the strength of Hercules. I tried! It has the strength of... Hercules. Hercules! Got anything better? Shh. Do continue. Please. So, Beth, what do you think of this musical? Well, I love Edmund Rostand's play, but I find the musical hugely disappointing in capturing the spirit of that play. And what makes it all the more infuriating for me is that I think Dinklage is actually a perfect Cyrano. But the musical leaves out the best of Rostand's play and tries to replace his wonderful poetry with trite songs. And then adding to this aggravation is that Dinklage delivers his lines with the panache that the character deserves, but then he's forced to sing in a decidedly kind of mediocre voice. I think director Joe Wright has a nice visual flair, but there's just too little of the actual play and the character that I grew up loving in the movie. Plus, it opens with a focus on Roxanne and an attempt to add some sort of like misplaced female empowerment to the the film, and it just doesn't seem to fit. You know, I mean, she's kind of a shallow woman who can't see Cyrano's soul until it's too late, so I, I didn't appreciate that kind of shift in the focus. And Yazdi, what did you think of Cyrano? <laughs> I love this film. <laughs> I think the choice by <laughs> the choice by Joe Wright to convert the stage play to a musical didn't irk me as much as Beth, uh, primarily because there are wide swings in melodrama to the story at every point, and I think the musicality complements that. And also, I believe the musical numbers are pretty well choreographed with a lot of flair. There are other reasons why I also admire this iteration of Cyrano. The original Cyrano is a lovelorn man with a large nose who thinks himself unworthy of the love of this beautiful woman. But the decision to cast Peter Dinklage here as Cyrano, and Peter Dinklage is a small person, that decision heightens the stakes so much more because he truly now has a reason to doubt that this woman is out of his reach. Socially, economically, they cannot even physically see eye to eye. And also the fact that Dinklage doesn't have the strongest singing voice I think works to the film's benefit because it is one more thing at which he cannot measure up to the woman he loves. So I think few filmmakers are able to do Swoon as well as Joe Wright, and he's made movies like Atonement and Pride and Prejudice, and I think this one is no exception. 
So a big disagreement on Cyrano. Let's move on now <laughs> to one of the most anticipated musical remakes in recent years, Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. This is a modern retelling of Romeo and Juliet played out with New York street gangs instead of rival families. Rita Moreno, Anita, in the 1961 film, plays a new character in Spielberg's film, and here's a scene. Tony. I don't tell you who to hang out with, but... But those boys are juvenile delinquent. They're no good for you, and you better wash out. Hey, you made fun of the way I talk one more time, Blondie. I'm going to talk to Riff and tell him he can't just come in here and not pay. Tony, wake up. I know you love Riff, but he hates Puerto Ricans. That is not you. Riff, don't hate you. I married a gringo. He thinks that makes me a gringa, which you don't, and I ain't. Yazdi, did Spielberg succeed in this remake? Listen, like many, I wanted to hate this film. Some properties are just too hallowed and should be left alone. Don't try a remake of Gone with the Wind. Don't do a reimagination of Citizen Kane. And in the same way, don't do an updated version of the West Side Story. So as much as I went into this film with a frump on my face, Spielberg and Tony Kushner slowly but surely won me over. There are many things that I grew to admire about this film. This version corrects many of the wrongs from the original, but it makes the original story about warring gangs in New York City relevant to the current reckoning we are seeing as a nation in relation to racial divide and police brutality and so forth. But I think... Of all the reasons that I like this movie, the one that I like most the, is the sense of direct yearning that manifests between the two leads. They barely meet the first time and suddenly nothing else seems to matter to them. The film takes this most cliched of romantic motifs and renders it achingly, gloriously believable. This Maria and this Tony don't have a choice. They are overcome by a yearning for each other that is as colossal and inevitable as planets in the sky. This takes it back to the absolute origin of the story, which is Romeo and Juliet. And I think this is very hard to convey on screen. And Spielberg's choice to make this female lead, the Maria in this version, very assertive in making all the first moves is such a wonderful update. So I, I really grew to love this movie. Beth, did you develop a yearning for this musical? <laughs> I know, I'm going to sound like such a grump compared to Yazdi. I'll start with the good things about this film. So Ariana DeBose is fantastic as Anita. The opening shots of the rumble were breathtaking. The fact that the actors were not forced to darken their skin and that people of color got to play people of color, all those things were great. The bad things for me, however, is a far longer list. But at the top of that is Spielberg directing, and the leads are exceptionally bland to me. Spielberg gives the film occasional moments, but nothing to convince me that he knows that much about musicals or New York City. So that's a no. <laughs> that's a no. <laughs> okay. From the curmudgeon in the corner. <laughs> Another musical set in New York City is Tick, Tick, Boom. It's based on Jonathan Larson's autobiographical play about trying to produce his first stage musical. It's directed by Hamilton's Lin-Manuel Miranda and stars Andrew Garfield. And here's a clip. Superbia, a satire set in the future on a poisoned planet Earth. 
where the vast majority of humanity spend their entire lives just staring at the screens of their media transmitters, watching the tiny elite of the rich and powerful who filmed their own fabulous lives like TV shows. A world where human emotion has been outlawed. This will be the first musical written for the MTV generation. This is my... Is this supposed to be aliens? I wasn't sure if it was all like aliens. Nope, not aliens. Um, but it is set in the future. Beth, I'm almost afraid to ask, will this musical get your third thumbs down? Actually, no. Ironically, I thought Lin-Manuel Miranda, who comes from theater, did a much better job of creating a vibrant modern movie musical with Tick, Tick, Boom than Spielberg did with West Side Story. Uh, In this and last year's In the Heights, both of which he directed, he displayed a genuinely innovative sense of filming musical numbers, and he made them feel wonderfully cinematic in terms of production design, shot choices, and editing. So I really love the way this one integrated the music into the story. And Andrew Garfield's character did feel a little bit like a Glee character on steroids and sometimes got annoying. But all in all, I enjoyed this film and the music was strong, unlike in Serano. Yazdi, will you and Beth finally agree on one film? (laughs) Alas, this is not going to be that day. (laughs) But jokes aside, I, I don't love or hate this film. I think it is very heartfelt and earnest. And my issue with Tick, Tick, Boom is one of scope. It is about the dreams of one person. And that is usually enough. But somehow I wish this film was about more. It doesn't carry the large, epic scale splendor of uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's other musical that was released earlier this year, which is In the Heights. And that musical had so much ingenuity, so much raw energy and creativity in terms of how each of the musical numbers were picturized. And I think purely because that particular musical had such a large scope uh, that that other musical uh, impressed me far more. Well, now I want to see all of them because I want to see which one of you is right. (laughs) (laughs) And I want to thank you both. You can find a list of Beth's and Yazdi's top 10 musicals at kpbs.org slash cinemajunkie and... Midday Movies will be back next month to talk about the Oscars. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.